Good evening. Here's your note sheet. If you want one, there's uh, one on your chair. Uh, you're welcome to it. P3 tonight, we're talking about the series continues and alone together as we discover together the one another's of scriptures. P3, what's it stand for? Positive peer pressure. Positive peer pressure. That's what we're going to talk about tonight using a text in Hebrews. Okay, so if you want to grab your Bible and open up to Hebrews, follow me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews is way at the end of your Bible. It's one of the last books. I think it's after Philemon. It's before James. And uh, it's a pretty big book. It's on 1891 in my Bible. Does that help? Chapter 10 of Hebrews. Okay. I picked, I picked, <laughs> I picked, I picked this text this summer to teach on. I really enjoy this text. I'll be honest. It's one of my personal favorites as a young believer in college. Uh, I came across this. I used it out of context many times because I wanted to get a point across. But after studying this text, I feel confident to teach it to you tonight. I'm excited because uh, this text, it, it uses rich and very careful words to describe to us what Christ has done. It paints so brilliantly and vividly a picture of who Christ is and what he's done on the cross, his work. In fact, I was thinking if words had aromas, this would have the aroma of Christ. This verse, these verses we're going to work through, these would have the aroma of Christ. Another reason I love this one another that we're going to work through, just like a lot of the other one another's we've talked about, it's intensely specific. It's intensely practical. If you walk away tonight unsure uh, of how to exercise this one another, uh, then I've failed you, okay? Because this is pretty clear. It's pretty obvious. It's intensely specific. It's intensely practical. I bet if I just read it, and we're going to read it, you could come up with ways to exercise it. But hopefully, after we really work through this together, after we pick it apart a little bit, you'll have even a fuller picture of how to exercise it, okay? Uh, over and over again in Scripture, I don't know if you've ever seen this pattern, but what we have in Scripture is this pattern of commands, okay? We have information, and then we have action. You might say we have doctrine, and then we have deeds, or uh, often it's referred to as indicatives and imperatives. Part of it tells you what, just sheer information, uh, indicatives. This is what's true. This is what's real. This is what God's Word says. And then the imperatives say, okay, now do this. Okay, is that clear? So belief and behavior. Uh, tonight, I'm going to call it reasons and resolve. So in verse 19 through 25, we're going to see reasons for resolve. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. I, if you're like me, I like practical preaching. I, I want to know, I want to walk away with something to do, right? Something to practice right away. But I want you to understand, I think you'd agree, that whatever is practical here tonight must come, it must be built on a theological grid. Okay, we must understand whatever Scripture commands us to do, it commands us to do with information. Okay, so I used to tell people all the time, you just need to go love one another. But if I just say that without teaching what Scripture says about the clear command about how God loved us so we can love others, that's like telling you to go fly an airplane but not taking you to flight school. Okay, so we need to go to flight school. We need to see what Scripture says before we can be resolved to go do, to go do something. So reasons... For resolve, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Follow along with me as I read. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, 
through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up towards love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why don't you pray with me? God, help us. Help us to go home tonight rejoicing in victory where you see us working in, uh, where we see you working in our lives, where you're doing good works. Help us to go home tonight repenting of sin where you've pointed out and convicted us through your word and through your spirit of sin. Lord, help us to go home this evening stirring one another on towards love and good works. And God, most of all, help us to go home this evening adoring the person and work of Jesus Christ more and more. We ask this in His name. Amen. Okay, so you see on your sheet there, if you choose to use it, we have two reasons and three resolves. This break, breaks up fairly helpful, fairly easily for us. I'm going to work through two reasons, okay, two indicatives, and then we're going to work through the action of those things. Three resolves. Okay, so look with me at verse 19. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. You notice this verse starts with, Therefore, If you've been around here for any amount of time, you know that that makes us point back, doesn't it? In fact, where where we're starting in Hebrews tonight, we've just got through the first major section of Hebrews. All the way from uh, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way up to chapter 10, verse 18. That's the first major section of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, if you're not familiar with it, I heard somebody summarize it this way once. It was the best way I've heard it put. They said it's basically a very long sermon about the supremacy of Christ. It's basically an extended sermon on how great Christ is. Okay? Christ is better, you could say. He's better than the angels. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the Old Covenant. And it's important for you to understand this book was written to the Jewish people. It was written to the Hebrews. Uh, and if you're like me, the, the distinction between Jews and Gentiles took a long time for me to understand. But when I did understand this, it really helped me understand a lot of the rest of Scripture. So if you go way back, if you think about in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. That was creation. And following Genesis through, we come to a man named Abraham. He was the father of the Jewish race. God decided to make a people for himself, a nation, a people just for himself. That people uh, was the Jews. Okay, and the Jews came under captivity in Egypt, and that's when you remember the plagues came in, and Moses set them free, and they started wandering through the desert. What happened in the desert? God decided to manifest His presence among His people, didn't He? How did He do that? He did it with a tabernacle. Okay, he said He was going to dwell among His people in a tabernacle. You'll remember they went through 40 years of wandering. They landed up in a, a nation that God decided to give them. They went in, Joshua and gang, started kicking butt, taking names. They took over a lot of land very quickly, and uh, they established a nation. God established a nation for them. What happened then? How did God dwell among them? He dwelt in a temple. Okay, so this is written to the Jewish people. The Jewish people came from Abraham. These are God's chosen people. So it's, it's important to understand that as we work through it. 
And the author exalts and deals with the preeminence of Christ, how Christ is the best against the four pillars of Judaism. Okay? He confronts those very directly against angels, Moses, and the Levitical priesthood. Sorry, I said four. Three pillars of Judaism. Okay? If you want to say it even shorter, you could say this. Hebrews can be summed up like this. Christ is better. Christ is better than fill in the blank. Christ is best. He's better than the angels. He's better than the prophets. He's a better hope. He's a better testament. He's a better promise. He's a better sacrifice. He's a better resurrection. The author just keeps repeating these themes through and through. In fact, uh, don't take my word for it. Go back a couple chapters to chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1. Here he says this, now the main point. You want to know the main point? He says, here's the main point in what's been said. It's this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Christ is great. Christ is best. Christ is better than anything else and anyone else that we could possibly compare him to. So he says, therefore. Therefore what? Well, therefore we have confidence to enter into the holy place. That's the holy of holies. Okay? It was, you got to understand, for these Jews, it would have been difficult to hear the word confidence and holy of holies in the same sentence. What is the holy of holies? Well, you need to understand just a little bit of a book called Leviticus in the Old Testament. You don't have to go there, but in Leviticus in the Old Testament, God is starting to lay down, remember I mentioned the tabernacle? God is starting to lay down some, uh, some statutes, some laws for how the priests... God chosen people to come before him were to do things. And uh, the priests had to wash daily just to enter into what was called the holy place. Okay, there was the outer court, there was the holy place, and then there was the holy of holies or the holiest place. And the holiest place, it was protected by this thick veil, this thick curtain. Don't think these curtains, think this curtain about six inches thick. Okay, protected the holy of holies from just the holy place. In Leviticus 16, we read, we learn about how once a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the priest, the high priest, will go through all these ceremonial washings. Have you ever read that? You're reading that, and there's a whole chapter about he's got to wash, and he's got to put on his turban and his robe, and then he's got to wash again, and he's got to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, and he's got to do this with the bull, and this with the goat, and this with the lamb, and he's going through all these things. So the Jews knew there had to be very specific things covered before someone could go into the holy place. In fact, Jews to this day, to this day I was over in uh, Israel a couple years ago with Brooke, and where the Jews, the closest they believe they can get to where the Holy of Holies were, was, you know what that's called? Well, you ever heard the word weeping wall? Okay, That's the closest the Jews will get to it. They won't go up on what's called the Temple Mount. Because okay, they don't want to accidentally... By the way, there's no temple there anymore. It was destroyed in 70 AD. They don't even want to go on where it was, where it would have been. So they don't even go up there. you got to understand, this is a big deal to these people. They don't want to accidentally step on it. But the author says, go boldly. Have confidence to enter the holy place. It's a strong idea. It's a strong word. Have confidence. To go forward, Ephesians 3.12, Paul talks about in whom we have boldness, talking about Christ, and access with confidence through faith in Him. And just like, listen, just like the Jews needed confidence to approach God, sometimes we need confidence to approach God, don't we? Right? We get timid, we get unsure. 
But the author says we can go boldly. We can approach boldly God. We can go into the holy place. Anyone, anyone who comes to Christ by faith can have confidence to approach God. That's an incredible thing. I wish somehow I could describe to you the magnitude of that statement better. We can, as Christians, if you're a blood-bought believer, you can approach God with confidence. In fact, I think Hebrews chapter 10, same chapter, go back and look at verse 1. This says it pretty well. Verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to have been offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They're saying, what a huge statement that is. These blood, this blood of bulls and goats, it doesn't take away sin. No, it just reminds them year after year, time after time of their sin. So why can we have confidence to enter? Not the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of the Lamb who was slain. That's the point. Old Testament sacrifices. You ever wonder about this when you're growing up? I remember asking pastors and my mom or whoever would listen, like, what is the deal? Why are they killing all these animals? Did you ever wonder that reading through this? Just laborious. I remember starting in Genesis as a kid so many times and reading it, right? And getting to like, you know, chapter 28 and I get going, Genesis. Exodus was pretty exciting. They were leaving the promised land. And then they started getting in the desert. And I would start reading through this. I would be like, what is this? What happened to the war? What happened to the exciting stuff? What's up with all these sacrifices? I used to think, how could these sacrifices pay for sin? Hebrews says they can't. They never did. They never will. That's why he had to offer them time and time again as a reminder. So what is the efficacy? What is the usefulness of Jesus' blood? Well, the answer is obvious. We can have confidence to enter the holy place. Well, how? Look back at verse 20. By a new and living way that He opened or inaugurated through the curtain or the veil, that is, through His flesh. This is a new and living way opposed to the old and dead way that, by the way, we just learned it was never really a way to begin with. It was just a shadow of the good things to come. It makes sense, doesn't it? Think about it. It makes sense that a dead animal could never make someone alive for God. A dead animal could never make someone alive for God. Instead, Christ is called the living stone, 1 Peter 2.4, the living bread, John 6.5. Dead animals could never make you alive. Christ, on the other hand, that's a whole different thing, isn't it? Christ is alive. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. The word here that the author gives us for new, uh, it's not the normal word here used for new. In fact, it's the only time we find it in the New Testament. And it means not new in the sense of just happened, but newly or freshly slain. It's a gory picture. It's a gory thing, but it's a beautiful thing. And so the efficacy, the, the, the usefulness of this blood for you and me, it's just as fresh as the day it happened. It's just as good to cleanse away your guilt and sin as the day it happened. Rereading the Bible that this is the Lamb who was slain before the foundations 
of the earth. That's good news. Made me think of the song, Oh Precious is the Flow That Makes Me White as Snow. No other fountain I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Colin, will you stick that picture up there? Jesus opened up the gate. Matthew 7, he swung the door open. And the curtain or the veil, that is his flesh. So what you have here is just a really simple diagram. There's the outer court on the right here. And then that first blue block there, you have the table and you have some, uh, uh, a candlestick in there. And then you have the veil, the huge veil, before you can enter into the Holy of Holies place. And it just helps, if you're like me, to visualize those kind of things. It separates the holy place that the priest could enter from the holiest place that they could only enter once a year. The holiest place. Now we can boldly enter. We can freely enter. We can enter anytime we want. Because when God the Father crushed God the Son, His flesh was torn. Just like the veil was torn, Christ's flesh was torn. In the same manner the veil was torn to the Holy of Holies, Christ's flesh was torn. The barrier's been broken down. Do you get it? Do you get this? Are you tracking with me? I know this is a little bit technical, but when you begin to understand this, when you, be able to, when you begin to grasp this and appreciate what Christ really did and God's wisdom and authoring this from the beginning of time, it's an incredible thing. It makes me want to celebrate. It makes me want to worship God more and more. And so in staying with the theme of Hebrews, you could say it this way. Christ has done literally and perfectly what the Levitical high priest did imperfectly and figuratively. They did it temporarily. He did it permanently. Let me say it again. Christ has done literally and perfectly what the Levitical high priest did imperfectly and figuratively. That's reason number one. Christ's blood in the new way. Here's reason number two. Christ's priestly role in His church. Verse 21. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God. It's a great priest, He says. This is Old Testament language again. In fact, go back to Hebrews chapter 4. Back a few chapters earlier, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. This has heavy contact with this verse. It's even it sounds similar in language. Chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne room of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Remember, before there was only one priest, Aaron, the high priest, who was able to go in. The rest of the Israelites stood outside and they watched and they trembled and they waited while he went in. The best they could do is he would wear the names of the twelve tribes on his shoulders and he would keep the uh, 12 stones as a memorial around his neck as he went in, but they just stood outside and watched. Now he says, go in, enter in. This is huge. This is a paradigm shift for the Jews. This might be a paradigm shift for you. We've watched Christ go in the curtain. We've watched Him go in metaphorically, and we're invited in after Him to follow Him in. Not tiptoeing in, but boldly. I was thinking... As I was studying and reviewing this, I was thinking about, did anyone have trick-or-treaters? Did anyone have the joy of that? No one? A couple of years, yeah. And how do they come up to your door usually? Their mom's like urging them along, and they got the pumpkin suit on, and they can barely walk, and they're tiptoeing up there. 
uh, really tentatively. I just love trick-or-treaters because uh, they're so tentative. They're little, they're nervous, they're shy. That's not the picture here. Nobody's tiptoeing up. He says, boldly come in, not brashly, not arrogantly, but boldly enter in, into the house of God, into the temple of God. Uh, Christ makes it clear He is Lord over the house of God. That is His church. You can be sure that He cares for, He loves His church. In fact, Ephesians 5.26, we read that He might sanctify her. Talking about His bride, the church having cleansed her by the washing of the water, the Word. Christ loves His church. He adores His church. So now we've, if you will, entered, after, uh, entered in after Christ. We've followed Christ in. We have our foundation. Okay? We have our grid for our imperatives, our resolves. So I want you to turn back uh, to, to chapter 10, verse 22, resolve number one. Draw near in full faith. Draw near in full faith. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true or a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It says let us. This is the beginning of three let us clauses. So in light of these two reasons, in light of these two things, these statements, these facts that we've just established, let's do these three things. Are you with me? We have these two reasons. Now let's go do these three things. I call them resolves because these aren't just suggestions. Okay, These aren't merely suggestions. These are imperatives. This is go do this. He says draw near. Draw near to the throne room of grace that you might find help in time of need. What will happen when we draw near? What happens when we draw near to God? James 4.8 makes that perfectly clear. When we draw near to God, what happens? He draws near to us. That's right. He gives us two ways to draw near. First way, draw near with a true or a sincere heart, a real devotion, okay, without superficiality or with real sincerity. Isn't it easy, if we were to be honest, to come here, cross life tonight? Some of you, that greeting time is just your favorite. You're like, let's make that greeting time a little bit longer. And some of you, you just dread that. You're just like, man, it is so hard for me to be genuine and real with people. Don't we long to be genuine and real and not just superficial? God says, draw near with a true, a sincere, a genuine heart. Draw near to God, not superficially, but draw near to God with sincerity. Matthew 5, 8, you might be reminded, says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Here's the second. Draw near with full assurance of faith, unwavering confidence, boldness. Again, not brashness. But boldness, you don't want to come tiptoeing. You're not trick-or-treating. You're going in boldly. You need to have confidence to enter in. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal Spirit offered, who offered Himself without blemish to God purify, purify our consciousness from dead works to serve the living God? You understand what's happened here? Hebrews 9 says, You could even say without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. In God's economy, the way He laid it down, unless there's blood, unless there's sacrifice, unless there's payment, ain't nobody getting forgiven. There's got to be some blood. And the blood of bulls and goats wasn't doing it. So what happened? He provided the sacrifice. The sacrifice was Himself. The sacrifice was His Son. His Son bled and died, was murdered violently on a cross. At the Last Supper, He said, This is My blood of the New Covenant shed for many for the remission of sins. Matthew 26, 28. 
There had to be blood shed, and He shed it. Why? So we can go boldly, confidently. Not because of ourselves. Not because of our own blood, no. But because of Christ and what He's done. So we are to draw near in full faith. That's resolve number one. Resolve number two, verse 23, hold fast in stable hope. Hold fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. There's two sides here. You might say there's a human side and God's side or a divine side. Okay, it says hold fast. And it's, it's normal. I'm not going to say it's healthy, but I'm going to say it's normal for us to be tempted not to hold fast, isn't it? Instead of holding fast to waver. True, genuine believers, their hope can waver. It can fluctuate. They can doubt. It can't be overcome, but they can doubt. And so the author says, draw near. Let us hold fast. Hold fast to the confession of hope without wavering. Hold fast. Not to salvation. That's secure. Christ has done that. That's grounded. That's that's here to stay. That's not going anywhere. That's persevering. Maybe these Jews, they had a desire to go back to the old covenant. They were comfortable with that. That's what they'd been raised in. That's what they'd known. Author says, don't do that. Hold fast. This is good. This is better. This is best. Hold fast to our hope. Notice it's the person's hope. It's the individual's hope, but its author is God. It's the individual's belief, but the maker has given the faith. God is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Amen? So a true believer can be... He can become discouraged. He can doubt. He can worry. He can be frustrated. But he will hold fast. Why will he hold fast? Because he who promised is faithful. This is God's side. This is the the divine side. Matthew 7, you might remember the illustration of the builder. He builds a house and the house stands firm. Why does it stand firm? Because he's a good uh, construction worker? Because he uses hard woods instead of soft woods? Because he used used a good nail gun? No. It held fast. Why? Because its foundation was sound. It was secure. We hold fast. Why? Because He who promised is faithful. This is true. It's foundational. You need to know that God is the rock. He is the sovereign. He is the foundation. All His ways are just, says Deuteronomy 3.2.4. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. He's a rock. He who promised is faithful. You walk away, if you forget a few things tonight, remember this. God is faithful. He holds fast. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Answer is obvious. No one can. The great preventative to wavering, what is it? It's the faithfulness of God. It's the faithfulness of God. The The persevering, the holding fast, if you will, it's motivated by a God who holds fast. So don't collapse. Don't capitulate. Don't draw back. Don't waver. Why? Because God is faithful. He is good. He who promised is faithful. The, the, the amount of times the author just brings Christ before us as an example in this text is staggering. Just soaked with the aroma of Christ. He says, look. Look at what He's done. Look at who He is. Look at what His character is. In light of that, hold fast. So we focus mostly on Christ's work so far. Now we're going to look at how that work pertains to us. Okay? He proceeds to his final resolve. Resolve number three, consider one another in love. Consider one another in love. Let us consider, verse 24, how to stir or stimulate one another towards love and good works. Here's finally our one another, isn't it? Here's our all alone. 
Here's our one another that we've been waiting for. This final let us, this final resolve, it's important and it's lengthy and it passes finally. Remember what we've been talking about from the vertical relationship with God? Now we're talking about horizontal relationship with man. We've discovered, we've understood our foundation. Now we need to understand how it affects us and how it affects others. It says consider. Consider, no doubt, not just to consider how to do this, but to actually do it. We have to consider these one another's, don't we? Remember the illustration I gave if you were here a couple weeks back about uh, buying my wife for her birthday a caribou hunt to Alaska or moose hunt to Alaska? Very self-serving. I I can't just go and try to stimulate one another. I can't just try and go and and encourage you or or push you on afterwards by, by going up and saying, Hey, come on, Trig, get it going, man. Like, let's go. Aren't you doing anything? That's not effective, is it? No, we need to consider. You need to think about the people here that you know. You need to act with discernment and wisdom and to consider how to stimulate them. What is going to push this person? What's going to stir them up? You know, I was thinking about, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about a taser. I was a freshman. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that violent, but it's a stirring well, I was a, f- a freshman in college. I thought it would be really cool to try getting shocked by a taser. So we were in my dorm room, and uh, yeah, I know. Stupid. They got this taser, and they tased me. And uh, let me tell you, it got me. And I never forgot it. And I was thinking about, we need to stir one another up. We need to to consider not how to break down, not to tear down, not to criticize, but to stir up, to stimulate, to provoke. And by the way, this is a strong word. It's where we get our word paroxysm, a sudden attack, onset. Often it's used in the medical field. Okay, when we see this word other places in Scripture, it usually has a negative connotation. It's, uh, it's irritation or exasperation. You could say it's peer pressure. It's positive peer pressure. Not in an annoying, nagging sense. Okay, I'm not talking about like texting somebody every five minutes during the day to see what they're doing. I'm talking about getting out the taser and, and turning it down and tasing them a little bit. Okay, and stirring them up. I think about how you can just encourage this person, push them on a little bit. How do you do this? Well, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But I want you to think about how you can consider don't just come and leave, but consider. i got some questions there at the end of your worksheet. I want you to go home and think about those. Tonight, tomorrow, over the weekend, consider how you can actually stir one another up towards love and good deeds. By the way, as I was thinking about this lesson, one of the ways you guys stir me up, some of you guys stir me up, you, you raise your hands during worship, during musical worship. I enjoy that, and I get nervous to raise my hands. I'm all thinking, oh, I just want to sit in the back so I can just... Wave my hands all over the place without worrying about it. You know what I'm talking about? But some of you just encourage me with your freedom just to lift your hands up. If you don't want to lift your hands up, you don't have to. But I want to sometimes. And when I see other people, I think, yes, thank you for stirring me on. I think about how do others stimulate you? How do they stir you up? How can you do that with others? Albert Barnes says, Men are sometimes afraid of excitement in religion, but there is no danger that Christians will ever be excited to love each other too much or to perform too many good works. Isn't that true? We're not in danger of this at Cross Life or anywhere else. Okay, I'm not 
calling people during the week and saying, hey, turn the dial down on the good works. Show off, okay? <laughs> You've been in the paper every week this semester. Turn it down, dial it down. No, that's not the trouble. We need to turn it up, right? Towards love and good works. No one's going, hey, back off, Tanner. No, I need to think about how I can be stirring you guys up towards love and good works. One another. That means those in this room or those in your church. It says love and good deeds. Okay, love is the inner attitude. Good deeds, that's the outer working. Often we see these two linked together in Scripture like this. 1 Thessalonians 1.3 We remember before God, our Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love. You catch that? Your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by what? Love. Love is the inner working. It says your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, love never operates in isolation. You think about that? The only kind of love that operates by yourself is self-love. To love God and love others. Love isn't stirred up apart from community. This kind of love that the author's talking about, it's impossible in isolation. Yes, stir one another up. Okay? That's the idea. Outer working, the outer working of love is good deeds or good works. Titus 2.14, who gave himself, talking about Christ, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us. Uh, purify for himself a people who are what? Zealous for good works. A people for his own possession, zealous, excited, uh, uh, fiery for good works. Are you zealous for good works? Some of you guys are. I see it in you. You're stirred up. You're zealous to do good works. You're out there stirring the pot. Are you zealous for good works? Are you helping others be zealous for good works? If you're wondering where to start with this one another, start with some of the other one another's. Start with thinking about how you can encourage one another, how you can love one another, how you can serve one another, how you can be at peace with one another, how you can greet one another with the kiss of love. No, not that one. That's one of our one another's though. You're thinking about last week, aren't you? <laughs> Think about these one another's, all right? There's so many one another's in the New Testament. They all work together. Bear one another's burdens. Admonish one another. Be kind. Be tender-hearted. Forgiving one another. Matt's going to talk to us about that next week. These one another's, they're linked together. You want to stir up someone? Man, you know how I'm stirred up? I'm stirred up when someone will shoot me an encouraging text with a verse. I'm stirred up when someone will remind me of something. My wife reminded me. Remember who you're serving, Tanner, today. I'm stirred up by that. Because let's be honest, sometimes we just get flat out discouraged. And we need others. We need each other. You need one another to stir you up, to love you, to encourage you. Verse 25, let's zoom back in. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Not neglecting to meet together. Not forsaking our own assembling together. Some of your versions say, why were they doing this? Why were the Jews, why was the audience doing this? Well, I don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. But a couple possibilities if we think about Hebrews as a whole. One was laziness, lassitude, a real lack of energy. Chapter 6, verse 12, the author writes this, so that you may not be sluggish. Sluggish. Don't be sluggish, but imitators of those who faith and patience inherit the promise. Hebrews 5, 11 
About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Maybe the Hebrews were dull of hearing. Have you become dull of hearing? It's come to come, you sit under it. I've heard this before. Dull of hearing. Why are you neglected to meet to one another, together with one another? Are you lazy? Uh, Is it lassitude? Is it dullness of hearing? Uh, Another reason the Hebrews, the Jews here, might have been neglecting meeting together was because of persecution. In chapter 12, verse 4, it says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Why are you tempted to neglect meeting together? made me think of the persecuted church. These Hebrews, these Jews, they were beginning to undergo persecution. Coming towards the end of the first century, and uh, at least the second half of the first century, and they're starting to undergo some serious persecution. But we haven't, they haven't resisted yet to the point of shedding blood. So what is the reason that you're tempted to neglect meeting together? It's that time of the semester, isn't it? It might be that time in your work schedule where you're just feeling stretched thin. Don't give up meeting together. By the way, this is, I, I should tell you, this is primarily, I believe, referring to Sunday mornings. This is primary larger church gathering. It says don't forsake that. Don't give up meeting together, as is the habit of some. Some had already quit doing this. Don't give it up. I see this too often. I see this far too often. It's more pronounced this time of the semester. Don't give up getting together to worship God. This isn't just any old thing that we're doing here tonight, is it? No, this is worship. This is bowing before the Lord of heaven and earth. Can you believe? Can you believe? There was so much going on in our world. There was so many Christians all across the globe that God would actually care what's happening here tonight. But do you believe that He does? Do you believe that we prayed that He would bless tonight? Don't give up meeting together. It matters. It matters to each other. It matters to each other. This isn't chess club. It's not city league basketball. It's not fill in the blank. Okay, What you're doing. And by the way, this isn't, this isn't about cross life. This is about meeting together with other believers to worship Jesus. Forget the name Think about Jesus. Gather together to worship Jesus. I've said before, this is Sunday mornings in particular. This is where young and old, black and white, tall and short, rich and poor, skinny, plump. Where we all gather together to worship God. Everyone. This is where everyone, regardless of what's going on in your life, Regardless of lifestyle, regardless of spiritual background, if you're a believer, this is where we gather together to worship Christ. That's a big deal. It's not a new phenomenon. This isn't a new thing. I thought it would be interesting for me to read to you John Calvin's commentary from the 16th century. He says, there's so much peevishness, that's crankiness or irritability, and almost everyone, the individuals, if they could, would gladly make their own churches for themselves. This warning is therefore more than needed by all of us that we should be encouraged to love rather than hate. We should be, uh, that we should not separate ourselves from those who are joined by a common faith. Start to love your church more. Start to love those in and around you more. Love, care for one another. You can pick your friends, they say, but you can't pick your family. Okay. If you're in a church, you have church family. 
Love those people. I want you to notice why they are to assemble. It says to encourage one another. Okay, There's 40-some, maybe 50-some one another's in the New Testament. Two of them in this passage alone. The Puritans, by the way, I love this. You know what they called Sunday mornings? Sundays in general. They called it the market day for the soul. It said six days a week you buy and sell. On Sunday you go. It is the market day for the soul. You're fed. You're nourished. These Hebrews, these Jews, and to meet together not for what they could get, but rather what they could give. You think about that as you drive to church on Sunday morning, as you come here on a Thursday night. I want you to notice something very important. The emphasis is not on what the believer can get from the assembly. It's a matter of what he can give to the assembly. I hope when you come, you get. It's my prayer that we would feed you well from the Word. That's a consistent effort, a consistent prayer, a consistent emphasis. But the effort here is not on what the believer can get. It's what the believer can give. That's important. So that's your mind. And by the way, at least in my experience, the more I give, the more I get. The more blessed I am, the more I can forget myself, which is hard, and think about others. I couldn't find it said any better way than Basil said, early church father. It's on on your sheet there. When we live our lives in isolation, what we have is unavailable and what we lack is unprocurable. When we live our lives in isolation, what we have is unavailable and what we lack is unprocurable. I want you to eat well when you come here, but I also want you to be in a place where you can give to other believers. And if I could just speak to you quite frankly about this, as I've spoken frankly to others in the past, I'm not quite sure how this is accomplished as I talk to students as a whole, to people in the workplace as a whole. With the infrequency and with the variety of places attended, I'm just not sure how many could possibly be pouring into one another. There's a mix-up in priorities. It's a matter of, I'll go if I have time tonight. I'll go if I have time Sunday morning. If I have a big test this week, man, this week is midterms. And you're going to deprive yourself of the market day for the soul. And I'll be honest, when, when some people aren't around, I miss them. When some of you aren't around, when, when most of you aren't around, <laughs> that sounds bad. When people here, when individuals here aren't around, I miss them. Because they help feed my soul and bless my soul. And I bet it's the same way in your life. Don't give up meeting together. Okay, Facebook, Vines, Instagram, those kinds of things, they can wait. Don't give up meeting together. Realize the exhortation, the stirring up, the stimulation, the, the tasering, if you will. Although it's not, again, it's not quite that violent. That needs to come from you. It, it, can't, it can't just come from the pulpit. It's got to come from, from Shelby and David and Andrew and, and all of you. If I say Andrew, I'm pretty safe because there's about six Andrews here. <laughs> it's got to come from you. You're going to stir one another up. Stir them up towards love and good deeds. 1 John 1.7 says, If you're walking in the light as He is in the light, you have fellowship with Him and with one another. In the blood of Jesus, His Son, it cleanses you, cleanses us from all sin. Do you love one another? Do you, do you long to be with the body? Or is this drudgery? 
This is one of the evidences of someone who really genuinely loves Christ. You know who else they love? His bride, his people. And this starts early. This starts before someone goes off the deep end. This starts with you and I saying, hey, sister, hey, friend, hey, brother, hey, beloved, I see what you're doing and I really believe according to God's Word, He's not pleased with that. And I want you to come back into fellowship. I want you to let me pray with you. I want you to be receptive to the words, to the Word, and to listen to what the Word says so you can correct them. You can stir them up. You can excite them. That's the idea here. Excite them to Lord towards love and good deeds. And by the way, we live in an age of digital sermons. We live in an age of digital church. I don't know you if you've been seeing this, this trend, but there is digital churches that meet every Sunday, okay? Alone in your home with your computer. Digital sermons will never replace doctrine with the body. You must be with the body. Those are good. Listen to sermons. But be with the body, sit under teaching. To conceive of real, vigorous, spiritual growth outside of consistent corporate worship, it's foolish. It's just foolish. If you're convicted about this, well, I think that's a good thing. That's a healthy thing, because guess what? It's pretty easy to fix. I've had to adjust this and think about this as I've studied this. As I've, thought, I've had to fix things in my own life. I've had to reprioritize things in my own life. I speak from all too much experience here. Trying to grow spiritually, but away from God's vehicle of growth. The Word, the Spirit, the church. Okay. It says, all the more as the day approaching. Let's go back to the text of the day. Well, probably what it's referring here to is most eminently the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., but even more so, even on a broader scale, the day is coming. The day is coming where Christ will return for His own. And where all will give an account before Him. So brothers and sisters, the time is getting near each moment, each second that I talk. The moment is drawing near. Now, not Christmas break. Okay, Some of you are emailing your professors and saying, hey, can I take that finals test on Monday instead of Thursday so I can go home a little bit sooner? You believe there's only like four weeks left? Not that day, but the day is coming where Christ will come back for His own. And in that day, will He know you? I hope He will. I pray that He will. Some of you are on the outside looking in, no doubt. You're on the outside looking in and you need to turn to Him. You need to repent. You should have great fear of that day until you are reconciled with God. You need to be sprinkled. You need to be cleansed. You need to be washed in the blood of Jesus. That's the only way. That's the only way. So unbelievers, if you're here, turn and repent. Follow Christ. Stop following yourself. Stop worshiping the world. Stop worshiping sin and turn to Jesus and follow Him. I assure you, I assure you it is far better than following yourself. The day is drawing near. The implications of these two reasons of these three resolves, they're immense. They're huge. We couldn't possibly cover them all. But I want you to go, I want you to think about these things. Further, I want you to put these things into practice. So in Christ, or because of Christ, because of Christ in His church this evening, draw near to God. Hold fast to your hope. I'll say it again, look around. Really look around. These are the people you need to start with. You need to stir these people up towards love and good deeds. Stir them up. 
all these practicums exercised here this evening and in the sacred assembly on a Sunday morning. So, you matter. Listen, you mattered. Even to this little group here, you matter. You matter to your church family. Serve their love there. Stimulate one another. Not just as a number, but as a person, as a soul, as a Christ follower. So get the taser out and stir one another up towards love and good deeds. Let's pray together. God, would you encourage us where there's victory here, where you see us doing well, where we can honestly reflect and say, yeah, Lord, I, by your grace, I'm doing well in that area. Would you encourage us? Would you, uh, would you help us to give you thanks and give you praise because of that? Where we need to be uh, repentant because of what we've heard, would you help us to be repentant? Would you help us to confess quickly to you and towards one another where we've fallen short? And God, most of all, most of all, because of tonight, because of your word, would we adore, would we cherish, would we praise, would we worship the person and work of Christ, the Son, we ask in his name. Amen.